A different podcaster might open their AI episode with an intro written by ChatGPT, and I don't see why I should help it replace me even faster than it already is. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we're joined by renowned tech journalist Casey Newton to talk about artificial intelligence in video games, what's happened, what's happening, and what might happen down the road. As you can imagine, there's a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Shire. Hello. Hey. Hello. How are it's you? Us. Welcome back to another episode. Yes. A new week. New app. A new week. A new app. Here we go. A new dawn for humanity. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, given given this week's topic. Yeah. Um, an episode that we are recording a little bit early, just in case massive news happened and you're not hearing about mm-hmm. it. Like but, the um, AI revolution already occurred and it was right. like, wow, so then we're really late to this. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was it was revealed that our guest is actually an artificial intelligence and uh, oh, we didn't know. Wow. Possible. So anything's possible these days. Um, We are so excited to have you here, and we are so appreciative of all of the Maximum Fun members that support our show. We are a listener-supported show, as I'm sure all of you know. We're in the Maximum Fun Network, a wonderful employee-owned podcast network that uh, we really love being a part of, and um, we hope that you want to become a member of. So if you want to become a member of Maximum Fun, go to MaximumFun.org slash join, and you can get access to a ton of bonus episodes. Uh, We recorded one recently about The Last of Us HBO show. We've been talking about a lot of different stuff. We've got a game coming up for this month, which we're excited about because we haven't talked about that many games lately, but there are so many bonus episodes, and there's actually now a function where you can get a custom RSS just for triple click bonus episodes. Cool. So you can subscribe to like all of the Maximum Fun bonus episodes, which is cool because you can mm-hmm. find out about other shows on the network. There's a lot of great stuff. But if you just want to only go through all the triple click ones, which can be nice, especially if you want to go back a few years and like listen to all the ones we've recorded, you can get a custom RSS feed for your player, which I subscribe to. It's pretty cool. Um, it just has all of our episodes in it. Good stuff. That is pretty so, cool. MaximumFun.org slash join is where you want to go for that. And one last thing. You already all know this, but it's coming up. It's getting kind of close. And that is the first ever Triple Click live show, which is going to be May 18th at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. There's also going to be a live stream. We are super excited about it. There's uh, information in the show notes. There's a link that you can click on. It's going to be so fun. We can't wait. We have not done. We've done a live show together as our previous podcast, but never as Triple Click. Forget that. Forget that. That didn't even happen. That's in the past. Ancient history. So uh, we're super psyched. Uh, that's May 18th at the Bell House. Get some tickets now. Uh, it's it's probably going to sell out. It's selling pretty well. So if you want to go, um, I would suggest that you hit that link and uh, smash that buy add to cart button. <laughs> Get some tickets and come smash see us live. It. Or, or click watch it. it on the internet because you can also buy a ticket and see it live streaming. That's true. You can get a get a ticket for the online show as well. Yes. So very exciting stuff. Speaking of exciting stuff and speaking of hot topics, we've got a very exciting guest and a very hot topic for this week's episode. So let's get to it. Bing! And actually, right before we get into it, this is Future Kirk as I edit the episode. I just wanted to note that we had a small technical issue with the audio for our interviewees uh, side of this conversation, and I had to perform some hopefully not too noticeable uh, surgery in post-production to get it all sounding right. You'll hear everything we said. It just it might sound a little bit weird at times, and if it does, that is the reason for that, so sorry about that. All right, let's get into it. 
In August 2022, OpenAI made their DALI generative image model available to the public, alongside other similar image generation models like Stability AI's Stable Diffusion. Then, a few months later in November, OpenAI released its GPT-3 large language model to the public in the form of ChatGPT, a predictive generative chatbot that was able to have remarkably coherent adaptive conversations with users. Since then, it's felt as though time has been steadily accelerating, as seemingly every major tech player has gotten in the game. Facebook, Google, and others have introduced their own large language models, or LLMs, and Microsoft, a huge investor in OpenAI, added GPT to its Bing search engine. Then just a few weeks ago, OpenAI released an even more impressive model in GPT-4, and despite some cautious urgings from AI researchers and outside experts, things show no sign of slowing down. So it's becoming clear that generative AI has the potential to transform the world as we know it. Art, politics, the very fabric of our society may never be the same. But what, what you may be wondering about video games. <laughs> That's what we're going to talk about today. And we are joined by a very special guest, Casey Newton, tech reporter extraordinaire, former senior editor at The Verge, current writer of the indispensable tech newsletter platformer, which he writes along with Zoe Schiffer and co-host of the New York Times fantastic hard fork tech podcast. Casey, welcome to Triple Click. Hey, welcome. everybody. How we doing? Hello. <laughs> uh, we're, we're good. We're very happy to have you here. Great. I'm excited to talk about video games. I, to be honest with you, when Jason asked me to come on, I said, yes, <laughs> but I, I want to know about Elden Ring DLC. So that's my main mm-hmm. objective. Yeah. You may have your own questions for me, but that's what I'm here to find out. Mm-hmm. Well, E3 just got canceled, so video games are no more. Uh, video games Unfortunately, not yeah. Elden Ring's no DLC is still coming. <laughs> Jason, don't, don't even imply. <laughs> <laughs> we can just make up a bunch of stuff about Elden Ring's DLC. Actually, I watched a whole 30-minute video about the one image that they revealed about Mikola and like the other Erd tree and yeah. stuff. So we really could get into that. Well, that actually, not... I will say I watched like five, I watched about 12 minutes of that video. And then, by the way, that creator, yeah. extremely talented, but for whatever reason, video. For, for whatever reason, I get like eight paragraphs in any of his essays and my mind completely glazes over. I have completely forgotten <laughs> everything that, that he said. But that kind of soothing, right? It is, yeah. that's oh, it again. I, it's yes. like, I think he basically makes ASMR videos, but right. I yes. don't, and I think he probably knows that, but I wonder if the audience does. Anyways, AI. Well, the, the new Elden Ring DLC, you actually fight against ChatGPT, but it's oh, like, it's, perhaps it's called, the hardest right, right. boss to date in the whole Well, series. it's called mm-hmm. ChatGPT, and it's a uh, giant boss that you fight, wow. and it the dark talks to you. It gives you wrong information. I'm seeing that uh, Casey has disconnected from Skype. He's vanished. Great to be here, you guys. I have to go. But Actually, nice I mean, Google yeah. Bard could be an Elden Ring character. Just like, that oh, that's the Google, true. the loathsome dung eater and the Google Bard. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so we're here to talk about AI. I guess a good place to start is with a pretty zoomed out question in the in the spirit of Jason Schreier. And that's a question for you, Casey. And that's just sort of, this is happening really fast, why, big picture, is this happening so fast, and what does that mean? Yeah, so I mean, I think if you talk to people who work on AI, from their perspective, it has not happened all that fast. They have been laying the groundwork for this for mm. decades, you know, and I think it was in 2016 that uh, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, first said on stage at their big developer conference, Google is an AI-first company. Um, for most of the past seven years, if you'd asked me, do I think Google is really like an AI showstopper, I would say not really. There's like some cool stuff in um, like Google Photos, but the rest is just some like autocomplete tricks, you know? But Mm -hmm. 
Then we get to last fall, and OpenAI has been working on this chatbot tool. They thought that people might like it. They were surprised by how much people did like it, but basically ChatGPT came out, and all of a sudden, um, you had something that had a lot of practical uses in people's life. And as soon as people saw that, everybody's imaginations went crazy with the possibilities. And because so much of the underlying technology has been uh, built up over the past decade or so, now these folks are sort of ready and they're and they're off to the races. So it's def the pace has accelerated at a um, uh, what's an what's a synonym for pace? The pace has accelerated at a rate that I find dizzy. <laughs> it feels exponential. Yeah, uh -huh. it's every, everything does feel like it's moving extremely fast right now. But there there's kind of a long history behind it. So I'm curious, based on that, just the fact that behind the scenes people were working on this and it wasn't something that was in the public view. I haven't really gotten a sense that people in charge of video game publishers or video game development have been working on AI in the same way or seem as aware of it. I'm not sure if you're aware of that at all either, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as, as you all know much better than I do, um, video game development is extremely complicated and we're just not quite to the stage where someone can sort of write in a natural language prompt like, you know, design me a samurai that, you know, has this move set <laughs> and just be able to like plop that character into Elden Ring. I do think we'll get there. Now, what I would be curious to know and don't know because um, I would never compete with uh, Jason Schreier uh, on <laughs> any beat uh, for any amount of money um, is to what extent um, developers may already be using tools like Copilot. Copilot is um, a tool offered by GitHub, sort of one of the main um, programming repositories, and developers now have what is essentially an extremely good autocomplete tool. So as they are writing code, uh, Copilot will fill in a lot of blanks for them. It will highlight errors for them, right? So I would imagine that developers on video games are starting to use these tools. Right now, these are sort of um, like an assistive tool. I've talked to some programmers who say that uh, with Copilot, they become maybe twice as productive. If you're a you know, um, uh, run a video game company. That's very exciting that your developers are twice as productive. But in truth, give it five years, they will probably be at least 10 times as productive, and you know, maybe 50 or 100 times, who knows? So I think this stuff is coming to every industry. It's going to happen in some industries, you know, faster than others. I don't know the video game industry that well. But my guess is, you know, given the enormous, you know, cost of video games and how long it takes them to develop, you know, the Elden Ring DLC famously is not even out yet for me to play. Um, the, as, <laughs> soon as, they, as soon as they can, uh, use AI, they are going to use AI. Yeah, so I have a little bit of insight on this, which is mostly that, um, I mean, AI obviously has been a thing in video games for years and years and years, usually meant to describe what the computer opponents do when you're playing against them. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, right. Generative AI has been used in games for a few years now as kind of like a tool to generate some of the massive open worlds that we've seen, and sometimes it's used to just kind of like make trees look more realistic, and sometimes it's used to populate a world, and then designers and artists can go in and kind of like hand tune some of that stuff. And there are a lot of different permutations on that. Um, so that I don't think is super new. What is really interesting to me, and I'm curious to hear your take on Casey as well, of course, as yours, Kirk and Maddie's, um, is this idea of like something like chat GBT actually being implemented in a game for gameplay purposes to a point where you could 
theoretically interact with an NPC that feels like you're talking to a person, or you can interact with the game and have it create things for you on the fly or have it just kind of like steer you in different directions. Like that, that's the sort of, sort of like uh, a hypothetical situation that just seems totally revolutionary and unlike anything we've seen before when it comes to game, game development in AI. Yeah, I, I mean, um, completely. The opportunity is there. Also, I'm like so embarrassed that you highlighted like some very obvious uses of AI in video games that I completely forgot of, right? Like all <laughs> well, these like procedurally I, generated see, worlds. Like obviously, you know, they're using sort of you know predictive models and all of that. So mm-hmm. yes, um, and actually though, I think that that highlights something really important was that when you're talking to someone about AI, like you have to be really specific with your terms because like yeah. today when people say AI, they're they're talking about generative AI and ChatGPT a lot of the time, but you know maybe not always. And you know, there's yeah, like, I still think about StarCraft opponents. And it's like yeah. playing me on AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, t- totally. So, you know, there's kind of this like thought in Silicon Valley that like we just sort of give the word AI to something that is just like sort of only barely become possible in computing. And then like once it becomes standard, like it stops becoming AI, you know. So anyway, mm. that's just one thing I would point out. But I mean, you know, all of the use cases that you mentioned are super interesting, Jason. And I do think that it will just change the nature of what kinds of games are available. I mean, I think you're going to see people having digital digital companions that live on their phones or desktops. And one of those things that those uh, companions will be able to do is just play a lot of different games with you. And I think at first those will probably be text-based or sort of audio-based games. You know, you could imagine like an AI companion as the dungeon master for your, you know, uh, D&D circle. Um, But then eventually I think, yeah, it does get into visual stuff. And like, you're going to tell your companion, like, you know, create an action RPG for me, you know, based on this uh, pirated idea. IP and like you know maybe in, in 20 years or so it'll be able to do it maybe it'll be a lot faster than that like right now everybody's imaginations are running wild and like nobody knows if this stuff is going to happen in three years or 30 or never but like whatever it's fun to think about <laughs> right it makes it a kind of fun time yeah. maddie you were talking about how using gpt3 itself is kind of like playing is a game. very game like uh-huh. yeah and people have actually already started to use it as a dungeon master and it, it is has some mm-hmm. rudimentary capabilities in that arena if you ask it to create a game and you tell it what the rules are i mean the rule sets for many tabletop games are freely available and ChatGPT knows how to play them so it will create you a game but also people will do perhaps the equivalent of what you imagine which is tell me what the elden ring dlc is going to be like and then it will tell you <laughs> completely fabricated information as to what it could be like. And you can pretend to play it with the app by typing in what you would do next and so on and so forth. And that is fun, I guess, in a text adventure type of a way. And it's it's appealing to the child version of me who fantasized about being able to type anything into a game <laughs> and have the game actually respond, which of course it will be like, oh, I don't recognize that input. Uh-huh. But ChatGPT will always playing Zork and, exactly, and it'll just exactly. like, yeah. Yes, right. yes. I just asked, okay, so I, I've been playing around with Google Bard, which is hilariously wrong about everything. <laughs> um, I asked it the other day, like, what video games have come out this year? And it's just listed, like, a, a bunch of wrong. games that came out last year. <laughs> it, was, it was the funniest thing. Anyway, I just asked Google Bard, um, write me a good question to ask Casey Newton in an interview for my podcast. And Google Bard said, uh, here's a good question. 
question to ask Katie, Casey Newton in an interview for your podcast. You have written extensively about the tech industry and its impact on society. What do you think is the biggest question, challenge facing the tech industry today? I don't think that's a very good question, but hey. Google no, it's Martin, a little bit, perhaps- a little bit, a little bit open-ended. <laughs> it's it's a little basic, but I'll tell you, I've been asked worse questions on a podcast. That's so, true. That's you know, true. That's true. Um, we're, we're now asking influences? questions at an eighth grade level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Good job, Google Barn. So something that I think people run into with the idea of generative generative content in video games and AI in video games, like the way that most gamers think of AI, Jason, you mentioned this, that we talk about the AI of enemies who hunt us in a stealth game and whether the game has, you know, really bad AI. Oh, they're so stupid. They stand around. But then also as many AI or sort of systems designers will talk about, actually really good video game AI is kind of dumb in the right ways. Like it Mm -hmm. has to be exploitable in a way that makes you feel good and makes the game fun because if it's too smart, which they can often do, they can make the AI is super intelligent and remember everything about what's happening. And if the guards don't forget that they saw you 30 seconds after they saw you, you're like probably going to get killed. Like it's totally. not very fun. Yeah. So we have all these existing notions of intelligence in games. And a lot of the fun, I think, of video games is in letting it surprise you. That's also true for procedural generation. Like sometimes in a game, especially when Minecraft was new, with Minecraft, which procedurally generates its world, it would be just kind of remarkable when someone found a weird, you know, mountain that was in a funny shape or something that was procedurally generated, this kind of ghost in the machine idea. Mm-hmm. And Casey, your co-host, Kevin Roos, had this now famous encounter with Bing, where Bing revealed this <laughs> alter ego, Sydney, that was yeah. in love with him. I'm sure almost everyone listening to this must know about it by now. But that kind of thing strikes me as something like it's an X factor when it comes to putting this kind of thing into an interactive space that we haven't even begun to think about. Yeah, I mean, there are just so many unknowns. And I think one of the things that scares me about AI systems is that when you talk to people who design the systems and you show them something like Kevin's interaction with Bing and you say, well, why did it say that? They don't know. These are predictive (laughs) models. Like you see it with an input and then a model uses various weights to determine which words to spit back out at you. But like they can't say, well, like here's why it said that it had a shadow self and wanted to break up Kevin's marriage. And so I think if if you're a video game developer, um, that's like a pretty scary thing to put into your game, right? Because you want to have a really concrete sense of, of what your, this AI is going to be saying to the people who are playing your game and and hopefully also like why it said those things. And so my guess is that's going to be kind of a limiting factor on how stu- uh, how quickly this stuff propagates in video games. I'm curious about how that works. Um, maybe you have some insight into this because I know, so these are predictive models, which means they're just kind of guessing at what word comes next and they're very good at guessing. So mostly it seems coherent. But you can't really ask them to reverse engineer their process the way that, you know, it's a little bit like the creative process. Like if a designer is like, hey, I built this level. Then you can say to them, well, why did you build it that way? And they can be like, oh, well, you know, I was thinking this and this and this. And they can talk you through their process. And then you can understand why it was made. And like you're saying, if a generative model is like, hey, I built you this level. Can you, is there any way that it could do that? Like it could talk you through the process, its own process? So, so this is an active area of research um, mm. in uh, the AI world is explainability, sort of um, trying to yeah. tr- trying to research these models and, and understand why they say what they say. It doesn't seem like they've gotten that far yet. 
um, you know, I've been writing about AI a lot recently, but before that, I, and t continuing to this day, I mostly wrote and write about social networks. And social networks actually faced a similar issue, which is if you open up a feed on Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, um, they the engineers can tell you at a very high level why you're why what you're seeing is there. But if you say like, mm. okay, but what about this video? No one can tell you why that video, right? <laughs> and and this has actually been a huge source of uh, of pain for all of these companies because of course you know members of Congress gets mad if they feel like right. you know their posts mm. are being down ranked and all so like the fact that shadow bands yeah shadow <laughs> bands so i mean it, it, it you know it drives people absolutely insane and i think that is frankly just a warm-up act for the ai version of the world like because right. once you know because people are going to want to put these ai systems in charge of a lot of things and we're not going to be able to explain their decisions i mean you can just see like how many different ways that's going to go badly <laughs> oh man yeah, yeah the idea of an ai predicting how it might explain how it did something and then giving you an explanation that sounds good, but is really just predictive. Like you, it is a very, right. and then people would take it at its word, like, because it seems credible, even though it's still just kind of predicting words. Right. It's, and also uh, like, yeah. if you're asking the AI, like the, uh, the, the other fear that people have is that it will lie to you, you know, it'll say, well, why right. did you do that? And it will say something to like protect its own interests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, that, well, I mean, it's also just wrong all the time and it's hard to tell, <laughs> hard to tell if it's, if it's lying deliberately or yeah, just being like, inaccurate. Yeah. Is it being manipulated? manipulative on purpose or it's just spreading more misinformation because that's also what the data it's trained yeah. on has done like right. we manipulate each other all the time and reams uh -huh. and reams of text on the internet <laughs> right. and that's what it learned on it well, knows it, how and to it's talk so its confident. way out of a problem it's very human in that it's just confidently <laughs> wrong yeah, about things like it, feels like you're, it feels like you're talking to someone on Twitter and it's like yes I am, here are these things that I know right. for sure <laughs> right here's this article that you wrote mm -hmm. that you didn't write or an employee that you know is slacking perhaps Perhaps, and they're just mm -hmm. insisting to you that actually they'll get right on that. And they definitely <laughs> did interview that person. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> this is one of the trickiest parts of AI that I find um, is that we don't really have the right words and metaphors to describe it yet. And a lot of like AI discourse is just people yelling at each other because like they use the word understand, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. So like on one level, AI doesn't understand anything. And the reason that it's getting it wrong is because it doesn't have a knowledge base, right? It's like not going back to a database, like when you're searching for like, you know, uh, you know, what is the Twitter account for the triple click right. podcast, right? It doesn't have any of that. At the same time, Google Photos, if you search dog in the search bar, that language model has, and I don't have a better word for this, a pretty good understanding of what a dog looks like because it has been shown mm -hmm. so many images of dogs and the model has been trained, th these are dogs and these are not dogs, right? And so, ugh, like, again, I find myself <laughs> at a loss for words because you have systems, like Google Photos is incredible at just searching for things, right? Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't understand what it's showing you. Um, but the flip side of that is that when, now when we're using these sort of language models, they too do not understand something, but the models, and here's the missing verb that we need to invent, understand mm. some kind of relationship between objects and concepts. And so it's like they can give you something that is sometimes it's 100 percent true, sometimes it's 50 percent true, sometimes it's totally wrong, but it's all just kind of caught up in that machinery of like what connections it has been able to make and how confident it is in those connections. And it kind of defies our human understanding of those types of connections because it's machine thinking. It's not, yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's drawing from such a vast set of data that our brains couldn't even like fathom the amount. So the fact that it's making all those connections, like it's not really, we do maybe need a new word for it. 
that's uh that's true totally i mean just like at the same i will also just sort of throw in there that you know we don't have a great understanding of how the human brain works right like right. we know some things <laughs> yeah, about it but, well. you know we don't, we don't have dreams? like a no one knows <laughs> um and so you know like a lot of the way that it feels like my brain is working in everyday life is just kind of mm-hmm. like a fancy autocomplete tool right it's like when i'm doing any sort of like basic arithmetic it's like i'm not i don't have a con <laughs> like a mathematical concept i'm just kind of like remembering so we're we're really just in like territory here that's like making us rethink uh, a lot of things. <laughs> rethink everything. Right. Yeah, yeah. rethink everything. Before. That's my message for your listener. Hey, <laughs> rethink everything. Yeah, yeah. Triple click, triple click fans. <laughs> rethink everything. Yeah, I was thinking before when you were talking about like how there's no way to like peek open, open the curtain and peek behind the scenes at this algorithm. I mean, it's the same way with the human mind, right? There's no way to really mm-hmm. peek behind the scenes when your partner like says something that ticks you off. There's no way to like crack open their brain and see what they were thinking. I've been thinking a lot about muscle memory lately and it's the same kind of thing like with musical instruments where they'll do those scans where they scan a musician's brain or a jazz musician when they're improvising and look at the parts of their brain that they're using and it's very much like brain expert scientists being like wow (laughs) look at that (laughs) like they really are just kind of amazed by it because no one really knows what's going on yeah but isn't that part of the exact problem that Casey was describing initially, which is that all of us have immediately become tempted to anthropomorphize the AI by repeatedly comparing it to the way that the right. human brain works it's and the how best mysterious we can do. that is. Uh, yeah, what else because are we're you like, compare well, to? the human brain is mysterious too, but that doesn't mean that these two things have any similarity right. at all. And even by describing it as understanding, we also used the word lying earlier because of course we want to characterize uh, any of these AIs as having a brain that we can recognize. I mean, we do that in games all the time. I feel bad when I don't fulfill NPCs requests of me and like their AI is extremely (laughs) rudimentary, but I still feel bad and I see them as people in spite of myself. And I see (laughs) GPT as as human-esque in certain ways, like when it apologizes or it lies and is caught in a lie, like (laughs) these, these things are recognizably human because it's imitating us, but that isn't really anything like when your partner lies to you. <laughs> Maddie, you, you know? should feel bad when you don't visit your Animal Crossing island and then I it do. grows weeds everywhere. So <laughs> I'll never cockroaches. go back. I can't now. Yeah, it's like we, it's kind of the difference between making something in your image and perceiving something in your image. Like we started kind of trying to make AI to think like us. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Are you saying we're gods, Kirk? <laughs> no, but well, we're playing God no, a little we're bit. we're not. <laughs> is the problem. Well, if we created general artificial intelligence, we're, we're, a lot of people would say that's kind of playing that's God, true. you're making life. And it's we've created something that kind of we wanted to think the way that we think, but it's it's expanded so far beyond that that now you wind up in a situation where, to use uh, Kevin's encounter with Bing slash Sydney again, <laughs> he has this encounter with a totally unnatural intelligence like a, or whatever you want to call it like a different kind of thinking that but it's expressing itself in a way that feels very human like this kind of creepy stalker and so he's perce- we're perce- everyone who read that story perceives it as a person talking to a person this malevolent intelligence that's in love with him when really what's going on is like that's just our perception beneath the surface it's totally different like you were saying Maddie mm-hmm. it's just imitating like whatever live journals it's read by teenage girls who have written versions right, of right. Sydney or the script of Fatal hundreds Attraction and hundreds of thousands yeah. of times and it's like well this is what I would say next after I profess my love oh he's married oh, this is what I say to that and like on right, and on right. and on until it uh-huh. becomes just a great story. I mean, really uh-huh. what it's doing is telling you a wonderful story 
And that's the part of it that does make me kind of excited for games instead of just scared because I'm like, well, that's kind of cool, though. <laughs> to your point there, Maddie, I think a lot of our interpretation and our perception and our anthropomorphizing. Anthropomorphization? Uh, sure. I got through it. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> Google Bard couldn't do it better. Um, of, yeah. of these AIs, I think a lot of that is also based on our kind of like years and years of watching AI movies and yeah. reading AI novels and mm. thinking of them in a certain way yeah. that has also kind of skewed our perception yeah, like, of that. Like the villainess of Doki Doki Literature Club is is a, char- <laughs> a, a right. character within the game who falls in love with you, the player. Right. Like imagine a version of that it's game. It's a very similar vibe to Sydney. Where she could really talk to you. Generally, yeah, oh God. Right? Be way well, scarier. I, and that's a horror game. It's supposed to be scary. I want to bring it back to games. And Casey, I'm curious to hear your take on this. Is there like, a, do you have you thought about like the ideal? Because you're a big gamer. Are you, have you thought about like what you would want to see from AI in games? Is there like, do you want to see it like totally pushing the boundaries, making like totally realistic NPCs that can talk to you? Or is that too uncanny valley? Is that too creepy for you? What what kind of, what thoughts have you had on this? I mean, I think i am actually really interested in the idea of ai companions there's a lot of lonely people in the world um ai companions will come with a host of like fascinating societal uh conversations and trade-offs and not mm-hmm. all of them will be great but i'm interested in that general the first place i wouldn't put them is is in a game but when i think about it is like why can't i uh, i shouldn't say why can't i i would love to eventually have procedurally generated elden ring procedurally generated god of war right like you know, like name your favorite game. What if it didn't have to end? Um, you know, if maybe these, you know, I mean, I feel like I, I love to play the, like these action RPG games and most of them just design, you know, what, five or eight biomes and they sort of run you through a little track. But you could just kind of infinitely remix those. And um, if you somehow were able to get the quality control up to snuff, um I, you know, I, I think you could do this. Like, like so many of the games that I love, I, I yes, I like it when they are innovating and they're coming up with like fun new mechanics for me to play with. But there's a very real sense in which I'm just sort of soothed by the fact that they are remixing elements of games that I've been playing since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's just where I think AI really shines. Um, and I would be happy to pay a subscription fee for like, you know, lifetime procedurally generated Elden Ring or, you know, whatever the game of the moment might be. So that's kind of where I would take it. You know, it's interesting. There's also a flip side to that because it's something we say on the show a lot is that a lot of games are too long. Like we run into the problem of like never finishing games because they seemingly go on forever already. And something Jason in particular has articulated is that a big problem in game development is that it takes so long to make games just because it's so hard. As we've all mentioned, it's just so labor intensive and just takes forever to build something like a God of War or an Elden Ring. And so the flip side of it is if on the development side, AI can speed up a lot of the processes that take a really long time, in particular, like prototyping or QA seems like something that'll be really aided by um, AI pretty quickly, then games that are actually not endless, but just very authored and very carefully made can be created more quickly. And we can just have more of them because they won't be such a death march to make every time they won't require you know so much labor so much human labor yeah i mean like mm. the, the rate limiting factor on like the amount and quality of video games I, I don't think is like the number and quality of stories to tell right I, like i think that if uh, you know if, yeah. if all of us could just sort of fill out into some incredibly complicated uh, like form field inside our ai like what our perfect video game would be and it could just sort of magically write the software that would be wonderful and so many more stories would get told and um 
you know, so I like I, this is the stuff that I think is really exciting. And I think, you know, and I am somebody who writes about and, and I will talk more about. And I think this is like part of responsibility. If you're a journalist writing about AI, you have to talk about the, the downside. There's a lot of downside. Like this has a potential for very serious societal disruption, right? Like I'm not quite one of the existential risk people yet, but I'm like reading the existential risk people, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to sort of get my head around this stuff. But at the same time, there's a reason why tens of millions of people are already using ChatGPT. And, you know, I will say that, like, a lesson that journalists learned from, like, the social media backlash was that you could just get infinite retweets by posting tech is bad every single day. And so, like, that is now the tenor <laughs> of all tech coverage. Um, and you're just sort of ignoring mm -hmm. the fact that hundreds of millions of people are using and enjoying these networks. I don't want to make the same mistake with AI. People love this stuff, right? And it can right. unlock tremendous human creativity. Um, I I love art. I am not an artist. I, I, I As a kid, I spent years trying to learn how to draw. I just never got very good at it. <laughs> now I can go into Dolly and I can just illustrate my new newsletter. And the better prompt I write, the better illustration I get. That makes me feel creative. I like doing that, right? And this is so rudimentary. You fast forward in time and I can just say, here's the video game. I want to play on my PS5 and it, it makes the <laughs> damn thing. Like, let's just like spend a moment living inside that world. That is actually pretty exciting. And I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. Don't you think it would be missing something, a human soul, if you just typed, <laughs> if you, if you typed a into soul? an AI prompt? Sydney's soul, Jason. I don't know. Well, if you say, Sometimes. Uh, like, when you're playing a piece sure. of art, you, you have to recognize the human behind yeah. it. I, I think if, if there were a, a future, that kind of sounds dystopian to me, a future where you could type in a game like Elden Ring, except set in space, and it would create <laughs> that for you, I feel like something about it would just feel so wrong and, like, uh, and soulless, and I don't know, I I don't think I would enjoy yeah. that world. Here's very why much. I think it would actually be cool. So I when I think about what Casey's describing, I think about Crusader Kings and Dwarf Fortress and basically very mm. authored games that have data sets that are created by authors and pull from those data sets in order to create distinct worlds. Like anytime you create a new Dwarf Fortress game, it invents a bunch of dwarves for you and they all have different personalities and those personalities are drawn from a pool that is authored and it comes up with hilarious and bizarre combinations and like each of them has different powers and so forth and that can be really fun and the sims is very similar of course there's much more authorship on the, the player's side with the sims in terms of the sandbox that you can play with there but there's still like only a certain number of permutations. So the more you can expand those permutations and, and allow that authorship to extend into multiple kinds of tools, the cooler the sandbox is. I mean, this is why people like Minecraft, as Kirk said, is because it's procedurally generating a lot of stuff, but it's also inviting you to use those tools to create something more. So that part I think is neat. The, the problem mm -hmm. that I see with Casey's hypothetical, which I think does sound really neat, is actually just that the data sets themselves currently are not great. Like I've given some some examples of data sets that I do think are really cool because they're created by cool, smart people. But like ChatGPT has some weird shit there. Like it is very biased. Mm -hmm. Like all of these image creation tools are deeply misogynistic, deeply racist. They are built on the data set that is our own very fallible human internet. So it has all of those entrenched biases in them. So I'm a lot more excited about like what we can do with these authored databases that people create where they're like, here's something we made. Like if we just take all of Elden Ring and we're like, okay, we're gonna give all the authors of this world residuals, but we're going to take this template and we're going to create more dungeons within it. I feel mm -hmm. more excited about the prospect of that as opposed to just like the entire internet creates a game because that <laughs> sounds like shit to me. I've been on the internet and it's not that great most of the yeah. time. 
Yeah, I like that. You're kind of it's like you're there's exhibiting some level of control or restriction on either end of the prompt or the data set. Yep. Sort of seems like an important part of this. And when you imagine like every single thing is possible and you can make a game that's entirely created within it, like that's the sort of maximalist mm-hmm. version on both sides. Where when you start restricting it, it gets interesting. Exactly. There's a thing Something, um, Casey, that you and Kevin talked about that I thought was really interesting since you've used uh, GPT-4 and these other language models so much was the fact that you run into the limitation of your own imagination before you run into a limitation of the model, which I think is something that developers or anybody creative working with this stuff will run into as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, and I, you know, I imagine your listeners might've had a similar experience where you get access to this tool and you're like, all right, I got a box. I'm going to ask the box things. You ask it a couple things and it's like, you know, okay, that, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds mostly right. That one was wrong. Okay. But no, that one's right. And then you're like, write me a poem and it writes you a poem. You say, write me a song and it writes you a song. And you're like, you know, write me like a, a Sopranos episode in the Seinfeld universe. And then it does that. And then it's like, um, okay, I, uh, I guess it can do literally anything, you know, but I don't know sort of where to go from there. And, um, you know, here's where I will say the internet comes in handy here because, of course, you have forums and people are sort of competing to outdo each other and get upvotes on websites. And so, you mm-hmm. know, the creativity sort of leaks out over time is, is mm-hmm. the, the collective wisdom of humanity comes up with new ideas. But yeah, just as like one person testing these things, I do often run into this kind of like cognitive limit of like, yeah, I've like basically asked it to do you know, um, everything that, that I can think of. The flip side of that is, I mean, there are also things that I wish it could do that it can't do yet. Um, sure. But, um, we'll, I think we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's that idea of a prompt engineer being a valuable new job. And (laughs) and in a game development studio, you can definitely imagine across a number of disciplines that being like a, you know, coding prompt engineer who can just sort of like knows exactly how to get exactly what you need in order to, to quickly write the code that you need. I think we should talk a little bit about the sort of uh, intellectual property uh, ethical considerations of AI as well, because while we're imagining this perfect world, there's currently already this live debate about credit and, you know, it's stable diffusion and Dolly, all of these these different models are kind of sometimes just stealing art from Getty Images or whatever else. and. I feel like there's a lot of those same, you know, with art and with writing, those same problems present themselves in video games because it's it's just a medium that has all of those things in it. But there's also the question of game mechanics, which has always been an interesting an interesting one in terms of copyright because I don't believe it's possible to to, you know, copyright a, a game mechanic. Like Nintendo can't say, "Oh, a side-scrolling platformer, like that's Mario. We own Mario. No one else can make one." And as a result, we get a lot of really great side-scrolling platformers. Do you have any thoughts about how how that's going to develop over I guess the near term yeah. rather than the far term? My my prediction is like big legal fight that ends up with payouts to big publishers. Like that's kind of what I'm guessing like, you know, I have uh, no doubt. So bleak. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, yeah. I don't disagree. But this is yeah. just like kind of how it works, though, right? Is like Napster yeah. exists and people right. use it. Music they love it. The and then the record label is like, hey, wait a minute. And then there's like massive legal cases and then everybody eventually gets paid out. And I sort of think something similar will happen here. You know, look, I'm a... I'm a publisher. I've put a lot of words on the internet. I have no doubt that my words were used to chain to train Bard and ChatGPT. It would be cool if I got a check. I will tell you, I'm not personally like on a ledge about. I'm not outraged that this happens because I am kind of a fair use guy, a transformative use guy. I'm kind of a remix yeah. everything guy. And like it, again, if, the, if there comes an opportunity where I can like sign my name on the class action lawsuit and like get my five hundred dollars, like maybe I will. But like it's not. 
of, of huge interest to me. But of course, everyone else is going to have their own feelings about it. And if you're an artist and they scraped your work without your consent to create Dolly or Mid Journey and you have feelings about it, of course, sue them. You know, like <laughs> I think it's just going to sort of be up to everyone to decide, you know, kind of how they feel about that. Um, but yeah, we're going to face big legal cases. Um, you know, th this whole idea of like, what are you allowed to scrape from the internet is something that I've written about a weird number of times because it it is not a settled question of law. There were these guys that scraped LinkedIn and these were public LinkedIn profiles. And they essentially, you know, anybody can, can visit these profiles. They just use computers to do it in an automated way and sort of make a copy right. for themselves. And then they, you know, used it for, I can't even remember if the purposes were nefarious or not, but they used it for something and probably. LinkedIn got mad. Yeah, it probably wasn't a great purpose, whatever it was. <laughs> they were so, just you know, doing it for fun. It wasn't nefarious yeah. at all. <laughs> this case was all the way to the Supreme Court and um, and LinkedIn loses the case and the, the people who scraped the website were allowed to continue doing what they were doing on the theory of like, it was on the public internet, bro. Like, the, like you, you, you left it up there, and just the mere fact that you use an automated tool to process that data is not a crime. So it is right. for that reason that I think the mid journeys and dollies and open AIs of the world may have a case to say, like, we were just looking at the open internet, bro. And by the way, we did transform it. We spent billions of dollars trying to take this like soup of you know alphanumeric characters and turn it into something resembling human intelligence. Th they may win that case, um, but it's like. And by the way, all the judges deciding these cases, like, I hope they have a technical background. Um, or at least, know, at least good clarity. Yeah. I don't know if it's a TikTok hearing where the congressman was like, oh. does TikTok connect to Wi-Fi? Um, oh, so, like, God. Oh, that is the level at which these cases are going to be decided. But, uh, yeah, we'll just have a seat. Yeah, yeah. You see a lot of that stuff in music, too. The sort of discussions of sampling after just writing counterfacts and stealing other people's chord progressions or jazz musicians quoting licks. Where now it's like you just speed it up so much to the point where pretty soon you'll be able to open Logic and just be like, write me a song. It might write you a song that it learned by studying a lot of yeah. Beatles songs. <laughs> but can you really say, right, that the Beatles should be able to like sue Apple for Logic doing that? Because whatever, like everybody uses those chord progressions. They're Beatles songs. Like yeah. that's how music works. It just kind of forces the question by taking it to a really extreme place. Because it's so capable, because, you know, AI is is able to do so many of these connections at once. Yeah, well, when you're literally cracking open a piece of art and then combining it with something else, it's a little different than, like, uh, uh, when you're taking something specific. It, I guess the equivalent would be, like, sampling heavily from a Beatles song and mixing that with something else rather than just taking the chord progressions. I mean, I think to the Elden Ring example, like, let's say Casey's Fantasy existed and you could type in, generate me an infinite number of dungeons in Elden Ring. I mean, the video game industry already has enough problems with crediting. There's no royalties. Yeah. Game developers are kind of underpaid and overworked. Mm -hmm. And the thought that this thing, this like infinite content generation would come at, at uh, out of their art without them actually seeing anything. I mean, that is going to be a dismal reality if this if AI really picks up steam in, in gaming specifically. I mean, already we we were just talking about um, uh, remakes. We've been talking about remakes because there have been this like string of really interesting remakes recently including a dead space remake that is made by a company that um that is not the same company that made the original because the original company is de uh, defunct um and so a lot of the people who worked on this remake had nothing to do with the original game and a lot of the people who worked on the original game see their work being remade and who knows how they feel about it i imagine some of them have very mixed feelings about it and that's like an official proper remake just imagining the ai possibilities there it's gonna be talk about dystopian yeah. for a lot of people. 
Yeah, there's a kind of you can see there's a dismal outcome for sure that seems possible, if not likely. There is also the fact that because the questions are raised by, you know, it's it's taken to such an extreme level that it really puts them into relief. You can really see, oh, okay, like this is what's happening here and how the art is being kind of cracked open and repurposed and made into something. It might actually lead to some good outcomes as well, just because it raises the question so undeniably that everyone has to ask it instead of just sort of going along and listening to Spotify and being like, I don't know, sure, I'm supporting the artist when you're really like supporting a record label. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if you're in a creative union, you know, like the Writers Guild or, you know, as, as these video game unions get spun up, like, I mean, this is absolutely what they should be fighting for, right? Is oh, like yeah. if there's remakes of our games, yes, give mm-hmm. us royalties. And if, uh, yes. you know, if, if you eventually train an AI on this, like they should get royalties as well. So I oh, hope they yeah. do that. You, that I, I, I imagine the listeners of your podcast know that you all have guitars in the background of, uh, of all your <laughs> Zoom backdrops. But I was just going to add, because you're all clearly musicians, like another thought. I've, I just want to see like how much this horrifies you. So unfortunately, the podcast listeners aren't going to be able to see their faces when I pose this. But it's like, you know, when I was 17, my favorite album beca- became, and basically still is, like Radiohead's OK Computer. What Have you thought about the moment where I'm just like, AI, give me 10 albums that are like AI, uh, th- that are like OK Computer, that b- sound like Tom York, that are on similar themes, and just like put that on the background, and then it can just do that. How do you feel about that? I think that's fine. Okay. Personally, this is something I've thought about a lot. Well, because like you're going to get that and that's nice for you to have something to listen to that's like OK Computer. But the real magic of Radiohead is the progression of the band and like listening to Amnesiac or Kid A, like listening to the stuff that came after it and then listening to OK Computer in that context where you're hearing like, oh, this is really cool. Like Tom York was already experimenting with this. Like they're adding these harmonies and like then, you know, five years later they did something like that. Like it's all it's about the sort of actual human progression of the band and it's cool that you can also then have another kind of okay computer but it's going to be totally different like it's going to it's not going to be the same experience listening to it so they can both exist it might not but if you could just like be like what are like give me like 14 alternate universe renditions of paranoid android like that might be a really fun afternoon for me (laughs) well yeah it might be (laughs) it might be but also you can already kind of do that with the spotify recommended playlists like that already is what a lot of people do like spotify is introducing ai djs and stuff i know they they use those tools as well Mm -hmm. but i just mean the recommended aspect of it like this is already something people want and they already do is give me all the songs that sound even a little bit like paranoid android and i unlike kirk am just wildly judgmental about this and i prefer to only (laughs) use curated playlists i don't like these Mm. algorithms but Mm -hmm. i can't avoid it you know we're talking about this on the hard (laughs) fork podcast last week because i'm also a curated playlist guy i make a new playlist every month for everything i'm listening to that month i rely heavily on the playlist that i've made so much fun doing stuff like that yeah and also i started using that ai dj and it's really freaking (laughs) good i know that's a lot of the time i want to listen to it (laughs) that's the thing that's the thing is that it's okay to like both things that's what I've consoled myself with as we're all talking about this is like it's okay to like the dwarf fortresses of the world but also the you know the really hyper specific the disco elysiums where it's like somebody had to write every word in this I mean you could also just be like hey I'm gonna google I want to find 10 bands that sound like Nirvana in the 1990s and you could just find 10 bands that sound like Nirvana and there is I think an important distinction to to make is the difference between an AI recommending you other bands and an AI recommending you a flood of AI generated music that was not even 
community sure. by people, yeah. where the amount of content there just is such an order of magnitude larger that it really becomes a kind of different experience. Maybe a really interesting one. We're probably going to find out what it's like in our lifetimes, but I guess we'll see. I think, like I was saying before yeah. with games, I think it's th- that we're going to find, I think humanity is going to find that like AI-created art in of any form just is missing something. And like I think you'll be able yeah. to tell when something is machine-generated. I think no matter how good AI gets, I don't think it'll be totally indistinguishable from human content. And I mean, to your point earlier, Casey, uh, uh, if you play Skyrim, Skyrim has a number of what are called radiant quests, which are procedurally generated quests. And you can immediately tell which ones are radiant quests versus which ones are like hand-authored, like scripted, like designed by human beings. And I don't think that like it'll, we're ultimately going to get to the point where you can't tell those apart just because uh, you play a game enough and you will learn like what is machine generated and what is not. You listen to music enough, you will learn like what song just like it doesn't have that human soul to it, doesn't have that like certain, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Imperfections, little imperfections. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, but but also just a feeling about it. I don't know, something that I think we as humans can just inherently tell. Now, maybe if someone is raised in the AI generation, maybe they'll they'll lose the ability to (laughs) discern what's Mm. human and what's not. But at least right now, um, I I think that that we'll know. I I hope you're right. What my big hope for humanity is that it has continued relevance in our AI future. <laughs> I, so I think that's a good hope to to close out on. Um, Casey Newton, this was so much fun. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you. So when when is the Elden Ring DLC coming out? Are we still don't know, Jason? <laughs> we Jason, all three Jason know, knows. but we, we will we, not. We, oh, we, we, know, we to don't know. I mean, we've been saying that hopefully not for a while because there's so many games coming in the near That's future. True. That, like, yeah, after we beat Tears of the Kingdom, it can come yeah, out Yeah, Zelda then. comes out in like three right. weeks. There's like Final <laughs> Fantasy and Diablo and Starfield, Starfield. and all this other... Mm-hmm. That's, I will say I think I'm I'm pretty confident that we'll hear more about the Elden Ring DLC like in June around when E3 should have been. You know what? That's uh, my birthday month, so that'd be huge. For there me. you go. So you'll get you'll get more info there. I think I have a good feeling about that one. Wonderful. Well, let's take a break, and then we will be back with one more thing. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And I'm Emily Heller. Wow, Emily, we've been doing this podcast for 10 years. I know, but hey, don't worry. You can jump in at literally any episode and hear us talk about some of our favorite stuff. Caterpillars becoming butterflies. Martha Stewart flying around in a private jet full of trees. Yes, you heard me right. Trees. Neighbors becoming enemies. Just kidding. (laughs) Whatever messed up stuff we can find on Wikipedia. Our impeccable taste in everything from dogs to TV shows to bodily functions. And horses. Lots and lots of horses. Come for our horned up rants about the world. Stay for the catchy theme songs. You might not learn anything, but we're a good hang. Baby Geniuses. Every other week on MaximumFun.org. Are you tired of being picked on for only wanting to talk about your cat at parties? Do you feel as though your friends don't understand the depth of love you have for your guinea pig? When you look around a room of people, do you wonder if they know sloths only have to eat one leaf a month? Have you ever dumped someone for saying they're just not an animal person? Us too. She's Alexis B. Preston. She's Ella McLeod. And we host Comfort Creatures, the show where you can't talk about your pets too much, animal trivia is our love language, and dragons are just as real as dinosaurs. Tune in to Comfort Creatures every Thursday on Maximum Fun. And we are back for one more thing. 
Jason, how about you go first? What's sure. your one more thing? I read another book. I've been on a, a real kick. I've read about, I think, 11 or 12 books this year so yeah. far. Someone was saying you should start a, a book club. I think someone in the Discord <laughs> was like, man, there should be a Jason Schreier book club because you're, love to start you're turning out so many good recommendations. Um, this one is a little specific. I don't know how many triple click listeners out there will want to listen to it, but it was an interesting book. It, it's a book called Talk to Me um, by Dean Nelson. Dean Nelson is a reporter, and this is a book about interviewing people, asking mm. questions getting people to talk to you, structuring interviews. And it's a really good read. Um, This guy, Dean Nelson, he is a freelance reporter for years. He wrote for The Times, among other places. And he has a very good conversational way of writing. Um, He writes in a very human way, and it's a very easy read. You can kind of breeze through it all pretty quickly. Um, And it's got a lot of good tips. There's a lot of stuff in there that I've kind of either knew or have learned over years and years of interviewing people, but it's still helpful to see it articulated. And I, I I found myself just kind of dog-earing a bunch of pages as I went and, oh, and looking for good tips uh, or like finding tips that I wanted to go back to and stuff like that. Um, there's just a lot of good stuff. It's And he has a lot of good case studies of interviews, of TV interviews, of podcast interviews, of written interviews. He talks about how um, you might have different, you should know what your goal is going into an interview, if whether it's to be an entertaining show, like if it's a live podcast interview like we just did, um, or if it's a, uh, a written interview where your goal is to get some just quotes out of it you kind of have different methods that you can approach and he talks a lot about about he talks uh, about a lot of the tricks of the trade that a reporter might use and kind of i think that like even though it's very specifically a lot of these tips are useful for reporters i think it can be extrapolated to other parts of your life certainly oh, i mean i'm sure yeah if you're like anyone has needs to ask questions and and keep up an interview style conversation with people if you're a lawyer and you are doing depositions this will probably be essential for you this this sort of advice um, if you're a doctor and you talk to patients and you need to figure out how to get information out of them there's a lot of just good advice in there about building rapport with the subject and figuring out the best way to kind of like get a question out um, and one thing I will say is that as a reporter um, who has been doing this for quite a few years it's actually uh, always it's always fun and reassuring to read something that is like telling you how you've been doing it anyway like the, the <laughs> advice is sure. basically what you already knew, which is always reaffirming and and a good a good uh, um, just kind of place to be at. Um, but even so, I think even the most experienced reporter will get some stuff out of this, and I think even non reporters will will get a lot out of this book. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's called Talk to Me by Dean Nelson. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I so I am a I was a horrible interviewer. I would say when I began my career as a journalist, oh. and I'm a subpar or mediocre one now. My problem is that I really like to talk. And that's a big problem if you're trying to interview people. If you really are like, I'm talking to this really smart person. I'm so excited. I just want to talk to them. Mm -hmm. I would find listening back to my interviews so often, I would be like, shut up, dude. Like I'd be listening to myself, like carry on about some who cares? Because no one is going to read that part of the interview. This is when I was working for Kotaku. I don't want to include it. And I always... When I see a journalist include their big, long, smart question, usually with then followed by the interviewee being like, what a great question. Wow. Like that's it strikes me as such a blunder. And I've been working on it and have found just to your point about this being applicable for everyday life that 
man, I was just at a party with a bunch of really fascinating people that I'd never met before. And I was finding um, a sort of fluency in just getting people talking and asking them questions and staying engaged. And just it was like a muscle that I'd worked a little bit more just from doing interviews for Strong Songs and um, and kind of consciously trying to be better at it. So I totally agree with the idea that like, yeah, it's useful for journalists or like lawyers or in a professional capacity. But it's a really good skill to just work on like as a human, as a social animal. It is. Mm-hmm. And it can be unsettling I'm sure we've all had the experience of talking to someone and they don't ask you a single question and you're just yes, like wow that's true that was too. not a fun conversation mm-hmm. to have so yes it's a very useful skill in life I, I, just to kind of um, so people don't have to read the book if they don't want just to give a couple of quick tips that I thought were yeah, the I'd most love useful ones one is um, that I think the most important tool or the most important thing you can do during an interview is just like listen and listen intently yeah. which is kind of something that seems obvious but also isn't that obvious because a lot of times when we're having an interview or even just having a normal conversation, we're thinking a lot about what we want to say next rather than Definitely. listening. When and podcasting, so, that mm-hmm. happens yeah, for sure. Yeah, when podcasting, for sure. Any kind of conversation. And I think just kind of like practicing your listening skills um, and just like learning how to really intently listen, which, I mean, again, easier said than done. It's something that yeah. I don't think, uh, uh, I think we all have trouble with uh, every once in a while. Um, and then mm-hmm. the other thing is just... Um, uh, yeah, like you said, not talking too much and just kind of like re-listening, record all of your conversations and interviews if you can and um, re-listen to them and just be like, man, I should have stopped the question here. I should have gotten <laughs> it. Um, yeah, I've done that many times, but then did learn from tool. the mistake. Yeah, you learned from it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not like, uh, again, what you just described is also one of the most common mistakes that any like novice interviewer makes, which is just talking yep. forever and um, sometimes not even ending on a question and, and the Yes, definitely something I would do too. Like um, you, the worst thing you can possibly get is the sort of withering. Was there a question in there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you never ever want to hear. Yeah. The other thing um, I think is most important and can also be applied to regular life is to ask very open-ended questions. My favorite mm. um, tool, and I was it was fun to see this like word for word in the book. My favorite tool is to ask, "What do you make of this? What did you make of this mm-hmm. thing?" Um, mm-hmm. And just kind of go from there, um, which I think is a better way than asking like, "Oh, did you see this thing? What did you?" You, did you feel this way about this? Right, and, like you don't right. want to ask yes or no questions in general. You want to ask open-ended questions. Let the person you are talking to kind of come up with an answer from there rather than steering them down one path or another. You know what's a good one? I know this is going to make us go long, but this is interesting. Another good one is just say more. Mm-hmm. Say more is great. Um, I, I hear it more and more in interviews and kind of notice when interviewers are using it. But a lot of times in just everyday conversation, you'll say to some someone, I don't know, they'll be telling you a story and they'll say, well, and that was a pretty complicated time. And you can just say to them, like, we'll say more about that. Mm-hmm. Like, what mm-hmm. what, did you, what do you mean? And then they'll almost always elaborate and you'll get the actual explanation. And, you you know, you could just move on and not say that. But say more can just be really useful to be like, mm-hmm. well, OK, that was interesting. But say more about that. I want to hear mm-hmm. more about it. People yeah. love that. People always have more to Other say. people yeah. love to talk, too. Mm-hmm. That's, people that's love the real to talk. life yeah, hack. <laughs> that's true. It's not just us professional talkers. <laughs> Everybody yeah. loves to talk. Yeah. And then... Uh, uh, yeah. Also asking, making sure you ask the tough question and find an empathetic yeah. way to do it if mm-hmm. you need to, but always ask it and don't let like your subject off the hook. If there's something that's like been in the news about that person or there's something right. that like you really have to get at, your audience will be disappointed if you don't ask them that question. Even the subject will be 
probably expecting it. So they'll be disappointed mm-hmm. if you don't ask them that question. Yeah. Another thing that you can get better and better at over mm-hmm. time. You've mm-hmm. gotten very good at it, Jason. Stephen Totilla, our former boss, very good at asking questions in general. A good, a good uh, question formulator there. Well, I'm going to go next with my one more thing because I'll be pretty quick. And it's um, another – I'm kind of going through the movies that Maddie watched <laughs> yeah, and brought to the show. Yeah, you're going through the Maddie Myers so movie yeah. list. <laughs> I feel like we've done this the other way around yeah, as well yeah, where Maddie watched all the shows totally that I have been recommending. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So now, now we're going the other way around. Um, I watched Nope, the Jordan Peele 2022, what would you call this? Sort of neo-Western sci-fi thriller. Horror, theoretically yeah. horror, although I didn't find it scary so much as freaking awesome. <laughs> I found it awesome too. Wow. So this is after Tar, which I talked about last week. Another really uncanny really provocative movie that I just have found myself unable to stop thinking about and totally agree. I really, really I really like it. There's a line in the movie where there's this hard-bitten cinematographer, I'm forgetting the actor's name, with the most I incredible voice, um, <laughs> who says something along the lines of a famous Hollywoodism, which is, well, I do one for them, and then I do one for me. Basically, mm-hmm. I do the studio picture, and then I get to do my, you know, arty thing. And this one feels really, you know, personal to uh, to Peel. It feels like he was just like, I'm going to just try some stuff. We're going to see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And he's always kind of been that way. Like, you know, Get Out and Us mm-hmm. both and us. were really rich in symbolism and could be interpreted and sort of argued about. I'd say Get Out was the least ambiguous of those and probably mm-hmm. also the most considered to be the most straightforwardly successful. And, and then Us was accessible. a much more, yeah. right, much was much less accessible, much more ambiguous movie that then wound up having a lot of really interesting conversation. And I'd say this is all, this is even further down that path where it is a very strange movie um, I think people were expecting, it's just because it's called Nope, that it was going to be this like really scary horror movie and maybe he's going to, oh, he's going to really change it up and go full horror. No, it really is this fascinating uh, movie that's really about the camera and Hollywood and the effect that viewership has on you. Mm-hmm. There's so much. I mean, this is a monster movie, a UFO movie, and kind of a Western, and so much of it is about trying to see the monster. They mm-hmm. want to photograph the monster, our heroes. That is or their goal. Or capture it or tame it. Which then, right, is it implies all of the sort of power dynamics of the camera. Mm-hmm. And there's, of course, all of this stuff in like with the history of Hollywood and exploitation and of animals and of black actors and of all different kinds of uh, basically beings who are captured by the camera and exploited in some way or another. And um, it's so interesting. And then also, that's all really cool. And I'm fascinated in that conversation. But just... The imagery and the depiction of the creature, which is essentially this flying saucer that eats people, is so (laughs) um, uncanny and horrifying. I really have found it to be really scary. There's something... There's a decision that he makes with the depiction of this creature where once it sucks people up into it, you yeah. hear them screaming from the clouds yep. as they're like as they're being, being digested. Yeah, they're <laughs> trapped inside of this thing, this really unusual claw. Like it's the nature of the creature is very odd and almost impossible to fathom in a way. And you hear them mm-hmm. screaming as they're being carried around and digested. And it's so scary. Like it really mm-hmm. that this one moment in particular where then they're all silenced is like really stuck with me. It's like pretty yeah. nightmarish, even though, it, like you said, it's not actually like an actively horrifying but, movie. I mean, many people have said they think it's the scariest movie, I think, for that reason, because it's that so is, yeah. unsettling to sort of imagine something like mm-hmm. that. And I think it's a pretty good metaphor for how Hollywood eats people as well. Yeah, I sure. Mean, it's One very that looks literal, like a camera. Yeah, but it is. I, I dug it. I really dug it. 
Yeah, it was a really cool movie. I'm just I'm happy to be spending some time watching these movies that have this these all these interesting layers and these points of view and these ambiguities like this and tar. Mm-hmm. Man, movies are are pretty cool. Movies so yeah, cool. um just wanted to throw out another recommendation for that for anyone Speaking who Speaking of seen cool it. movies. And now and yes, well, now we're gonna take a turn a downshift to take a hard left turn. Um, Oscar contender yeah, me. I wanna hear about the layers and subtext and I wanna hear wow, about all the this is a deep one, guys. It's surprising horror in this one no just kidding <laughs> guys i saw the super mario brothers movie uh, yeah, so by did. the time by the time this episode comes out because we're recording it in advance probably many of our listeners will have seen this but mm. i did technically see it in advance but who cares I, well you we all care. know that you're, you're special it, it is important yeah, Maddie, I'm special. Maddie, Maddie is special. guys that's what matters I'm, special. <laughs> I'm so special uh so I would say this movie is fine with a capital F. It's very much a kid's movie. So Mm. if you're kind of on the fence about it and you're like, is there really going to be that much for me to be entertained by as a grown adult who enjoys Mario as a video game? Perhaps not. Although I will say I did laugh quite a bit at Jack Black and also my personal breakout star of this movie is Seth Rogen who got clowned on a bit in the press for saying he wasn't going to do a voice as Donkey Kong. And you know what? He doesn't need to. His beautiful speaking voice, he's hilarious. His comic timing is impeccable. Why would you ask Seth Rogen to do a voice, quote unquote, as Donkey Kong? His current voice is absolutely perfect for it. And I thought he was hilarious. I don't think any of his lines actually had jokes in them. And instead Mm. he just makes the role funny, which I think is a gift that is hard to explain to people, but I think can also be adequately explained by Chris Pratt's total nothing burger of a performance, whereby (laughs) I often felt Mm. like maybe if a slightly more charming (laughs) performance of Mario had been, had been assayed here, (laughs) I might feel a little differently (laughs) about the character, but instead I felt like he was pretty forgettable, but that's Mm. fine. It's a Mario movie. You're there for Toad being funny. You're, mm-hmm. you're here for Donkey Kong being funny. Peach gets many beautiful heroic moments. She is the only female character in the film. So mm. don't expect any more than that. Of course. And uh, yeah, it's really simple. I don't know. Almost nothing happens in it. It's it's Mario. It's I, I Watch the live action Mario movie. And then and then become a Max <laughs> Fun member and listen to our episode about is it. There a, is there a Smash Brothers teaser at the end? Is there like Master Hand comes there up isn't. and says... Do you, do you guys want me to tell you the post-credits sequences? I want to know. Well, no. not... So Samuel Jackson comes out and he's like... <laughs> I want to know one thing. I do have one question. Okay. That is, is there a reference to magic mushrooms getting you high? No, there oh. isn't. But that is the kind of joke that would be in this movie. Mm-hmm. No, that's why. So this was, to explain, this was a prediction that Maddie made a couple of yeah, years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, I would have lost that one. But, okay. but that's, I was very that's curious. sort of the, the thinking here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's fine. It's a perfectly okay. fine movie. I'm glad we didn't wait yeah. and do a Beans cast on it. We would have had <laughs> really, truly nothing to say at all about it. Mm. And again, I'm very glad that I made, I made us all watch the live-action Mario Brothers movie because... It's so much weirder and it has so much <laughs> yeah. more plot in it and takes so yeah. many more risks than this movie ever could. So if you go to this movie or watch it on streaming and you're like, I just want a little more weird Mario in my life that was like so by the books, just check out that other one, you know, and, and nice. it'll, it'll give you a weird feeling. I hope, well, I hope the safeness of this one like allows for Nintendo to move forward Me and like, take a little risk. Risk, yeah, of, mm, take a few right. risks with its movies and TV shows. I think it's going to make a bajillion dollars, and it's yeah, so sure. safe that I'm like, great, do like a weird Daisy movie next. Like, do something else yeah. a little well, weirder w- with it. One thing worth noting is that there are very few kids' movies in theaters these days, yeah. and so I think that for that reason alone, it's going to make a lot of money because a lot of parents out there are like desperate for something to take mm-hmm. their kids to. 
And it's totally mm-hmm. inoffensive and fine. Like watching this 16 times, I'm, you will go insane. But like, if, you'll be okay. You know? Yeah, like, I want to take my kid. I think my kid, my kid is three and a half. Like She's only three and a half. She hasn't sat through. She can barely sit through the Mario game. Um, so this one's a short one. It's only an hour and a half long. Like mm. I truly was like, wow, that was short at the end of the movie. Yeah, too. I'm thinking so, about it. I'll yeah. think about it. It's fine. Yeah, I'll probably watch it when it hits Netflix. But yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's find a way. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'll say that. Well, that's that. This was a really fun episode. Um, thanks again to Casey Newton for coming on the yeah, show. Yeah, everyone and, should uh, go subscribe yeah. to Platformer. Definitely is... subscribe to Platformer and listen to Hard Fork, Hard a great a podcast. Show. Platformer has been Casey's newsletter platformer. Him and his uh, his co-writer, Zoe, have really been the number one source for breaking Twitter news and like writing about mm-hmm. the shit show that is that company. So everyone should go yeah. check it out. They're on top of it. And yeah, Hard Fork, really like a great way to just keep abreast of AI stuff in particular. He and Kevin are doing a really good job there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it for now. I will see the two of you next week. See ya. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.